It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts. Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com. Welcome. In collaboration between Seabock and Virtual Conference Mastery, we bring you this episode on working from home, Zoom, and all that other good stuff. In addition to seabock.com that you heard in the intro, you can also visit vcmastery.com. That is vcmastery.com to engage with the Virtual Conference Mastery experts. I'm Tom Bradshaw. I'm a voice, speech, and presentation coach. And with me is Dr. Jeremy Lukaba, an industrial organizational psychologist. And we're going to talk about some things during this podcast about working online. But we're going to talk about stuff that a lot of other people don't talk about. Because, <laughs> because Jeremy and I are both nerds, and we have kind of backgrounds where we really get into things, presentational skills or the psychology of online, which a lot of people are just not talking about. And Jeremy, for this podcast, I want to focus more on the CEOs and what they're going through as we hit the one-year mark of the pandemic. A lot of them were a little ahead of the curve. They were online. They were already doing virtual meetings all over the world. Now you're doing virtual meetings with everybody. And you're no longer standing in front of a stage talking at an AGM or a corporate event. You're no longer even in the boardroom talking to people across the table. We're now working in this virtual environment. And mm. even when the pandemic's over, it's not going to revert back totally to where it was because there's there's significant cost savings. And I think CEOs in particular are starting to see that with remote workforces that can be incredibly successful and have a lot of financial considerations, but it's not working totally effectively. And CEOs are like everybody, even though you've got a computer with a mic and a camera, doesn't mean you're being successful. There's more to it than that. What are some of the things that those CEOs should be keeping in mind? I think for some, it's it's part of it's refreshing. I mean, we've known for a long time that real estate costs are one of the most draining aspects in terms of financial resources. Companies have explored this idea of a shared workspace where some people come in and they share the same even desk and they come in in different ways. And flex time and work work from home has been explored and there's been a huge resistance to it. I think in the back of a lot of people's minds, it's coming as a little bit of a relief because where it's forced into a decision-making process and we know where the decision is going to have to go because that's where the world is leading. The big struggle is, of course, what's the biggest struggle? It's always engage employees, motivate employees, and those who give their discretionary effort, the effort that they don't really have to spend at work and productivity. It's hard enough to do that in person. And now we're looking at this online aspect. And I think takes a lot of changing of perspective and taking a huge step back, especially for C- for the C-suite, 
to, to completely take a step back and look at things from an outside perspective and say, okay, I used to think that working from home was not good because it meant employees weren't dedicated. It meant they were going to slack off. That perspective has to change. And what it changes to is it's up in the air and there's really no wrong answer as long as it changes and, and, and you're open to it. And the idea is really take a step back, take a walk. And for 20 minutes, just think the opposite maybe of what they were normally thinking. There is a lot to be said about productivity increases that can happen with work from home if done the right way. I mean, we still, we still hear the, for a lot of people, they are horror stories where people feel attached to their desk at home and they are afraid. They feel little children and they're afraid to step away because their manager is closely monitoring them. And we all know if, if we're treated that, what happens to productivity and discretionary effort. Right. So there's, there's a lot to talk about for sure. I, I guess there's probably no way we can get a sense or even calculate right now what percentage of the workforce won't be returning to the office that are going to stay working remotely. But talking with some of the industry experts that you have access to, are you getting a sense that there's maybe a sweet spot that a lot of major corporations should be looking at for how much they want to spend on real estate, how much they really want to get into the remote workforce? As new at this as this is, and you think about it, Zoom has been around since really 2012, I think. Yeah. It was or even 15 when they did their IPO. Video calls have been around really, I think the first one was between president and somebody overseas back in maybe the 60s. So it's been around for a while, but there's been such a resistance to it. So after a year, I would say people are scrambling. I don't think anyone knows of any sweet spot. They're, they're figuring it out. And what they think first, second try around might not be exactly what it is. I think the determining factor is really going to be industry. What, what, what industry are they in? I think Apple just came out, was it Apple just came out and said, look, we're not going full remote because of that creativity that's going to, that's needed when you put people at the water cooler, hand in hand, those kinds of things. I think it's going to depend a lot on, on industry and what types of creativity are required based on not just industry, but also, also job type. As far as a sweet spot, that is a figuring it out. And again, it's all about taking a step back and trying to look at different perspectives of what could be possible. And sometimes it's taking a, taking a chance, which doesn't sound very inviting. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Let's focus a little bit more on the CEO because the camera is great and it focuses our attention onto the, the person who's viewing us. But still, it's really quite easy for people to not connect with the speaker. If I'm a CEO and I'm talking to either it's an individual, it could be another member of the C-suite, or it could be a random employee, or once again, at that AGM for investors. Mm -hmm. How do I get their focus? How do I get them to, to really hear what I'm saying? That depends on how many Zoom calls they've been on before <laughs> they get to yours. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of different techniques that, that, that can be done. First, Whatever, whatever particular interaction that is, are people there because they want to be there and because they want to learn something and they're genuinely inter interested or is there another reason? Try to figure out the motivation for those that are being there and really latch on that ahead of time. Think about who your audience is. 
and two minutes, pen and paper, write down what are the what 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 my main audience personas. What is what is their main reason and motivation for coming, and what do they want to get out of it? And you can say those things up front. One of the easiest tricks is say people's names that are there, right? Mm -hmm. Not just the really important people on the call. People love to hear their name and that will click people towards engagement. The recent, Tom, help me with this. The uh, study, was it Stanford that we were talking about? Yeah. The, the Stanford Zoom fatigue. Zoom fatigue. Yeah. If you've taken, if anyone's taken that quiz, I'm, I'm sorry, bad wording for that. It, <laughs> that questionnaire that survey, one of them was asked about your level of engagement during a, a virtual meeting. And right. one of the options was, I'll work on other things, but just listen for my name. And that goes to show how much your name really means. There's a psychological concept called the cocktail party effect. When, we, when information comes into our brains, think of it as a, think of our brains as a funnel and you've got all these marbles of information trying to buy, trying to get their way down to that little hole in the funnel to get into your consciousness, to get into your attention. Our names carry so much weight. Our names are a very heavy marble that is turned in to liquid egg yolk. It goes right down into that funnel, into your consciousness. When you say people's names, you attend to it right away. That's why if you, it's called the cocktail party effect, obviously, because if you're at a party and you're talking to someone, even if you're really engaged in conversation and you hear your name in another conversation, you attend to that really quick because you want to hear, oh, they say something good or bad. But that name, it, 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 it bears a lot of weight. Calling people by name in these meetings is, is very important. Figure out what's motivating them to attend and by all means, when if you're if it's an interactive kind of meeting and you're asking questions, do not ask any binary questions. No yes or no questions. Right. It's always what and how questions. And unless you want your audience to get very defensive, don't ask them why, because that triggers defense defense right away. The other thing too, because we're talking about potentially very very important high stakes meetings. Right. Whether you've got good news bad news, neutral news, say some of the negative things that they're going to be thinking, get that weirdness factor out of the way and let them not be wanting to think and say that. Instead of, you're going to think our numbers aren't good this, this quarter. You're going to think that we dropped the ball and didn't handle the pandemic well, especially being a hospitality company. Say those things because if your audience is going to think them anyway, get them out in the open that way they can actually listen to your message. And that really, I mean, if you, if you're a CEO and you started that way, that would get my focus. But I want to ask you, because if, if I'm doing other work and I'm just listening to my, for my name, am I really listening? No, but that's the point of somebody saying your name is it gets you to listen. True. And it gets you to start to pay attention and that will actually just call you over and hopefully as a speaker, you're doing, a, 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 again, there's a lot that, that goes on with effective communication and it's not just one or two techniques, but a lot of these are A, uncomfortable and B, completely against our instinct. There's a whole other process that goes along with it, but at the very least, 
Tom, if you're not listening to a conversation and you hear, hear your name, at the very least, you, you'll tune in quick to what's being said. Even if somebody says, hey, Tom had a great point the other day, you're going to tune in and you're at least going to be there and mindful, even if it's for 60 seconds to a minute. Right. You're also going to feel a little bit of guilt because you weren't paying attention. You're also, your brain is going to go back to, oh my gosh, what did I miss for the past two minutes that brought my name up? Between the guilt, the fear of missing out, and the fear of potential embarrassment in case you're asked a question, you're probably going to pay attention for longer than 60 seconds or a minute. You're probably going to stand at attention for at least another five to 10 and maybe the rest. How is this going to affect, with especially with major corporations, because We've seen a lot of them sort of reduce their their workforce, but as the pandemic lightens, a lot of those people are going to actually be coming back to work and companies are going to be hiring more people. How do you onboard someone now that we're so engaged in the virtual world? Onboarding is one, one of the toughest things, and I know companies are really struggling with this. When when you onboard, when so, onboarding, the biggest thing is uncertainty. And that's why there, people are flooded with information when they get onboarded to an organization and they're still thinking in the back of their head, you know, who do I talk to for this and that? What am I supposed to wear? What are the social norms? They're thinking about all this. Meanwhile, they're being trained and they have all this uncertainty and it certainly doesn't help if, if it's all virtual. Right. Think back to if, you, if, if, if you're listening, if you've ever changed schools when you were younger, especially if you're a military family and you're changing schools 20 times throughout your life, how, how good does it feel to have a, a, just one friend to go sit down at the, at the cafeteria with just, just one to welcome you. And that's real hard in the, in the virtual environment, any kind, e even if it's just an offshoot, it doesn't have to be a formal buddy system or a formal mentor system. Just have some, kind of system where even if you put two new employees together, one of the biggest, there's a study done on this recently, one of the biggest success factors for, for employees in terms of productivity and engagement is having, having a best friend at work, right? Hmm. And I know that makes a lot of people in organizations, not a lot, but some cringe a little bit because they're thinking, oh, well, works for work. If you have a best friend, it's, that's not the case. Well, you got to think of a best work friend. If that's one of the major determining factors, think of someone who's newly onboarded in a virtual environment facing a ton of uncertainty without a best friend. How detrimental is that? Also with onboarding, most a lot of companies don't really have a, a training and development budget. Most of that training and development that an employee is going to get is within the first two weeks, month, three months, six months, if we're lucky. And all, all that can be Think about the effectiveness of that training if that person has a best friend in the, in the workplace. Even if it's a very small buddy system or you get a, a tiny little tribe, tiny little co cohort, depending on department or what it is, that's very, that's very important. <laughs> this might be a little controversial, but I, I've been onboarded. The last time I went through the process was for a post-secondary institution. Mm -hmm. It was three days and it was terrible. Uh, is that common? A terrible Are we really, really bad? Are we really, really bad at onboarding people to new organizations? Yeah, I can't remember where I heard this. Somebody made one of the best points ever. How many parties 
people when somebody leaves gets a new job going away party huge celebration cake mm -hmm. everyone gets out of work 10 minutes early what happened to the party when people are onboarded and oh, that's a good point <laughs> really making that i mean that's when you're that's when it that's what it should be done <laughs> you go back to that question of is, is that is that normal to have a a terrible onboarding i think if we did a survey just on a scale of one to one to five how was your onboarding experience at your last job i i think we get a good idea but i also think many of us know i mean onboarding has it has it gotten better i don't know i remember one of my first jobs dating myself i was stuck in a room i was told to watch a vhs tape for two hours and then i filled out some paperwork right yeah and we really think how far is onboarding come from that some companies are really focusing on it and doing it right, but that's that's what it takes. Many companies do a check the box, right? I've done it, but they don't focus on it and they don't make it part of their really employer brand and part of their culture to have an onboarding experience because it shouldn't be a transaction. It should be an experience. Bad analogy, but I'm famous for my bad analogies. If you bring a new dog home, a new puppy home, What's that onboarding experience? Everyone's involved. You're, you're focusing on that puppy all the time. Could you imagine if you just brought the puppy home, you had the paperwork, you got it shots, and then you just said, all right, here you go. It, it, it's not like that. But you need in order to acclimate that, that puppy, that dog to, to the family. And same with, same with business. There are a lot of things that, that can be done to enhance the onboarding experience and get that away from a transaction. And none of this has to cost a lot of money. I think one of the biggest hold holdups with, with organizations is they think that to mot to, I don't want to say motivate employees because employees are motivated. It's about taking away the constraints and the roadblock about engaging employees and having effective onboarding. I think it's going to cost an arm and a leg. And it's really, again, those simple things, 10, 15 minutes a, a week, can really make a difference, but it's about consistency and putting those processes in place. If I'm a CEO, what are some of the benefits that, that successful onboarding will bring to me and my organization? The first thing you get is an emotional attachment to the organization. If, if you onboard appropriate, appropriately, if you onboard effectively, there's three types of commitment to an organization. There's normative commitment, affective commitment, and continuous commitment, right? You've either got, look, I'm going to give you my energy and my time and my skills because you're giving me a job, right? So just re reciprocation. There's another one. I'm going to give you my everything because I get 401k and I get paid, right? So you're getting something in return. The other one and the most important one, and this is for all, for any companies having problems with retention, affective commitment is by far the most important type of commitment to an organization to reduce, reduce turnover. That's an emotional attachment to the organization and properly onboarding jump starts that process and makes it hard to go back to a negative emotional attachment to the organization. That is the, the, the biggest benefit is a reduction in turnover. You spend how much time hiring, recruiting, training, everything else, a new employee, just to have them leave because it wasn't the, the right job fit or organization fit. That's a whole nother conversation. Right. But affective commitment, 
you get them committed and emotionally attached to the organization, they're going to give you their extra effort. They're going to stay later when they don't have to. They're going to be doing stuff even at home. Everyone's at home. Yeah. They're going to be doing things with, that they don't have to do, going the extra mile for the company's benefit. And what is that? It's increase in productivity. It's contagious, positive morale. It's contagious to other employees. Do it the right way in the beginning. And that can be very powerful. We, we were part of a, a fantastic conversation the other day uh, with some colleagues from Ireland about loneliness that people are, are facing in working virtually. Is that something that CEOs have to acknowledge? And is it something that CEOs might actually be feeling? That I, I'm glad you added that at the end because I was going to say probably the loneliest are the CEOs. They say it's lonely at the top. That is, that's, it's so true. I would say, yes, it has impacted CEOs in terms of the loneliest factor in a way that no one, that many won't stop to think about and many couldn't even imagine, depending on what level you are in the organization. We always, let's refrain from the word always, some, sometimes individuals think that whoever's above them doesn't really work, they're salaried, or they do this and that. They don't work as much as, as I do, is the thought. Right. But if every person in the organization feels that at every level, I think it's time for everyone to realize, look, if you're a salaried employee, you t- you're taking, you are working how many extra hours and not getting paid overtime, right? If you're, if you're an hourly worker, you might think your manager is not doing much at all, but kicking their feet up. We've got to get away from that too. And how do we get away? Transparency, better communication, and back to loneliness, Tom, because I can get off track sometimes. <laughs> Can't we all? Yes. I think as far as loneliness, the C-suite, it can be very, very lonely for them. Now, how... How do they get past that? I mean, is it time for the C-suite to start to form better relationships and become more of a, of a tribe or community to beat the loneliness away? I Sometimes in my mind, I can't see members of the C-suite doing that. Funny you should ask that, Tom. You just reminded me. I wrote a very short blog article back. What, what's today? March. I think it was March 7th or somewhere around that of last year, right when the pandemic hit, taking a different look at what was about to come. And of course, now we've experienced foreshadowing of how relationships in the organizations are going to change and it's going to open up different types of of communication. And it's going to force, it's going to force, and this is my prediction, it was going to force organizations to focus more on the employee experience and relationships, not just with similarly leveled employees, but cross-functionally and cross-level as well. As far as CEOs and that C-suite and those in those higher-up positions, it could be time. Some people are just thankful because now it's an excuse to start to have more candid conversations, even if it's not on Zoom, on the phone, with the internet, we all know that they're the barrier, while some people become more timid with it, the barrier also creates a feeling of security 
And if we're, if CEOs are able to make new connections or talk to people and learn to trust in a different way, it's not easy having focus groups, bringing other people in. I think, I think a lot of people in the C-suite would be amazed at what would happen if they brought in people throughout the organization that they never expected to interact with and that those people in the organizations for sure never expected to be interacting with the higher ups to see what kind of suggestions, see what kind of interactions and what could actually come out of that. There are some organizations that employ these teams within organizations that, and this is a model that I think could actually could also be effective to combat loneliness and also really to solve these new problems that organizations are facing. Wouldn't this build, I mean, I love what you're talking about, but, and I can see some people being really challenged, but this will really not only improve communication up and down the food chain, but wouldn't this build stronger, better organizations? Oh, all throughout. I mean, if, if you think of organizations as, as a spider web, if, if you have some, some it's, it's all the same strength. And that's what makes a spider web strong. There is a, um, a really large construction company that whenever they have a problem that all the engineers and, and everyone in the organization, when they have a problem they can't solve, they call in everyone else, the admins, the janitor, that's what they do. And they get them together and they're able to solve the problems at, at a pretty decent rate because of these outside perspectives. And also it strengthens the relationship with everyone in the company. And it also gives us a level of appreciation. And we know how important appreciation is in right. an organization. To combat loneliness, bring in people who, who wouldn't expect it. Watch the morale skyrocket. And And what about online events? I mean, we got to know each other through our work with virtual conference mastery, uh, vcmastery.com, if anyone wants to check it out. But you're part of another organization as well, CBOC, which stands for? The Society of Evidence-Based Organizational Consulting. We're a uh, fantastic group of industrial organizational psychology consultants and other workplace experts. Yeah. Very yeah. Good. but and, and you guys have, is it the CBOC happy hour? Yeah. Happy and hour. it, it, it sounds like just an amazing way to bring people together and once again, build that, that tribe, build that community. Is that something that organizations should be looking at doing something similar to that? I think so. As, as, as easy and cost-effective as it is to put something together and really just to get anywhere from 50 to hundreds of people. And all, all we do for our happy hours is we have, five questions that we put up on a poll and then we we talk about them and the feedback and the following and like you said the tribe it just grows and grows and it's a good indicator of how good an event or meeting was just like any good conversation either it leaves you drained or it leaves you excited and motivated and hopeful and if organizations can employ something that even if it's just an uh, an open-ended make sure everyone gets invited it can be once a month and it doesn't have to be anything too formal it can really just be thrown together the idea is to do it so many so many so many things that are helpful in life aren't done because people get hung up on the planning process and it has to be perfect if you're an organization 
even if you're just 10 people, if especially if you're for organizations out there where you have sales teams that are spread apart nationally and internationally, mm-hmm. ha- have a happy hour, just get together, have fun, ha- have one or two questions. Have five questions. I guarantee you won't get past the second one because you'll have that much engagement. But that can be very helpful for morale. Right. For for someone my age who I remember when the internet started. 23, remember- <laughs> 23 Tom? Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, I've seen 23 a few times. Um, <laughs> I remember getting getting a job where it came with a computer. That part of my workstation had one of those square little Apple computers. And it was transition to go online. And in the last year with the pandemic, it's been, for me, it's been another huge step forward into getting to the online world. But there's a whole generation of young people. I think of, I've got a daughter who's two daughters, one's 17, one's 21. And they participate in these online communities and online tribes. And it seems to be really quite effective. Not only are they enjoying what they're doing but especially in the pandemic where my bubble is me and my two daughters it's given them a chance to talk and interact with other people what can we learn and should we be keeping an eye on that generation and see what they're doing and how it might be applicable to the to the business community with your experience what how would you answer that question that you asked me well i I'm not into things Dungeons and Dragons, but I have seen my daughters stare at their computer for three hours to watch another group of people play Dungeons and Dragons. I've got former students who are online doing Dungeons and Dragons, and they're building an audience in a community. I've seen people watch other people play video games online. And once again, they'll stay focused for hours. Now, how do, (laughs) boy, if I can keep my employees focused for hours, if I can keep them interactive, if I can keep them, it's, it's not, they're being dragged to these things. They want to be there. How are they doing that? What can I learn from that? And how do I implement that to my employees? They're engaged as that younger audience is, or maybe this is just something that is about that age demographic. Maybe they're unique in their ability to focus to online content. Wow. <laughs> uh, you're probably going to have to give me the hook off stage for going on too long. That just provided a couple, a couple very interesting thoughts. First, and again, this is just thinking about what you said. How many people in an organization are would be interested to to watch, watch other people work, right? I know that doesn't sound too exciting, but what if, what if you're in an organization and you're looking to find out, Hey, what do successful people in my organization do, or what's it take to be successful? And what are some of the, the more interesting things? Let's, let's take something that's already quite interesting. Let's say a large company, of course, you've got your event planners and, or, or even marketing. What, what if you could, what if companies could host something or just video other people working on interesting projects and be able to post that on internal company page or whatever it may be that people can see what does it take to work in a marketing department on a time crunch and see all the creativity that goes on. 
And again, it doesn't have to be anything where you're hiring a video production. It can just be where they get a chance to on their free time, of course, unless actually, hey, there's some ideas here. Put it into, you could put it into some kind of training. These videos, again, uh, reuse the material. I mean, there, there's, there's some ideas there. The second thing that you, when you hit on is how do you get your employees to be that and become that engaged? I'm a big fan of passions, ambitions, and talents, right? I call them pats. Everyone has, when people are off work, everyone has some kind of, something really gets them going, some kind of passion. Everyone's really talented at something, even if it's arguing, right? There's somebody, some people are just very talented in, in tons of different areas. Think about all the arts and everything out there. Whatever it is, employers and managers can find out what really moves their employees and tie it in to, to their work and really get them engaged. And I apologize for the plug here. There is a blog that I wrote on, on increasing motivation through passions, ambitions, and talents, where I provide examples that I've done through different train the trainer courses that I've built and run, where the most mundane jobs, very mundane, I'm talking line level jobs, mundane, where people have, where managers have been able to take those very mundane jobs and tie them directly into someone's passion. What, for, for example, I won't say how it's, how it was done because I'll be giving it all away, <laughs> but, uh, and it would take too long to explain the, some, it was, it was somebody who was a server at a restaurant and, the, and their manager was able to tie that directly into that person's passion about, about being a veterinarian. And it increased wow. that, per, that person, it was about to leave. They ended up staying. It increased their, demeanor and in, in, in front of customers, because you can tie, I'm a, I, I truly believe uh, you can tie any job into someone's passion and get them to imagine and, and use some, some different skills. And I think that's really part of it. Now, some passions are made people, people aren't born. You mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. People aren't born having that passion, right? Sometimes things can be made and we find out what people are passionate about. And sometimes we can change work just a little bit. And if we can't change the work, we can almost always change the environment in which that work occurs. Even if it's remote and work from home, find out what is lacking. Maybe it's whatever is lacking. Maybe someone needs either new equipment or whatever it may be, but it, it all comes back to communication and taking one to two minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes a week to talk to the employees and find out what that is. Right. With that in mind, isn't it incumbent for a, a corporate leader, a CEO, a president to really become, I don't want to use the, the phrase, a star of their organization using things like video, but don't they have to create a really positive presence for the online world and, and take those leadership skills online? I don't, that is... A very tough question to answer. I don't know of a lot of CEOs who would want that for themselves. Hmm. There are a lot of CEOs who like to be stay in the back and be very effective in the back. Right. They also there's also a lot of CEOs who would rather raise you know, their employees to that level of stardom. And quite frankly, time wise, is it make would that be deemed a priority? I think. I think that kind of thing would have to be tried out. There would have to be some, some pilot examples, experiments, and see how that's effective and how that really affects the bottom line in terms of that presence and whether or not. And one way to start is to look, look at companies out there 
that in the past have had a CEO who is more in the limelight and creating what you're talking about virtually have they, are there CEOs in the past that have done that not non-virtually and that's been effective for those companies? And if so, can that be transferred virtually? I think, I think you may be onto something, but I think it would take a lot of data to support to a CEO that that is a route that they want to take to make it a priority. Well, I look at someone, Steve Jobs, who was not only a great leader, but he had an amazing on-stage presence and it transferred to the camera incredibly well. If it's if it's the CEO or if it's the head of communications, is it important for a company now in the virtual world to have that online spokesperson who has excellent skills of communication and can promote not only the company, but the environment and a whole list of other things? I think there's where we're at. They would need those skills. Yeah. There's a lot of CEOs who aren't comfortable on camera, who don't have the skills and as much good as it could do, if they're not adept at being on camera, if they're not adept at that presence, then that probably is another factor of, of why they're, they're not doing it. Right. And something else to, to note, Many, we talk about, we talk about CEOs and the majority of CEOs are small business. And because of the culture that we live in, we think of CEOs, we all, we automatically think, you know, Pepsi and all these other huge companies. And I think especially for the smaller, small and mid-sized companies, that could be where there's the best, absolute most impact where a CEO would want to prioritize putting their putting their face on camera and, and really leading, right? Because you have these huge, these huge organizations. Yes, you can, you can, you can be, you know, an Apple CEO and, and, and do that. But especially with the smaller organizations, people are looking to be led. People are going to be having interactions, more interactions with that CEO percentage wise throughout the company. I think for the, for the smaller and the medium sized companies, that's where CEOs can have the biggest impact of they don't already have a, a great stage presence, get one and learn to be comfortable on the screen and be effective with the communication and lead, get out there and lead, be that voice for the company. And that can provide direction and most of all clarity in these uncertain times. People are looking for leadership. And if, if people have the option of doing, if CEOs, if their only way, or if they have the option of doing it virtually with whatever technology, I mean, we could go on and on about the different ways of technology, but it doesn't, it doesn't even take crazy technology. A CEO can, can jump on, do a video, do an announcement. It takes uh, not too long or better yet, hold an event, have, an, have, have a respectable, healthy stage presence. And again, watch the morale skyrocket. <laughs> well, and and I, I love talking about the, the smaller businesses uh, and those CEOs because I know with my experience, I've worked with CEOs and presidents of smaller organizations. And I think of one in particular, and I won't use any names or their product, but they came up with this incredible program and they market it locally, but they have no, they're small enough that they have no reach to a larger market. But one of the things that the pandemic has shown with everyone going online is that you really have access now to the entire world, and I think it's 4.8 billion people are now online. I believe it. 
Yeah, it's it's easy to look at the pandemic as this terrible devastation, but isn't it really important to start, especially now, looking at it as the opportunities and start mining those opportunities? Have to. The I mean, this the solid answer is simply yes. If there there's such a learning curve that if if companies aren't getting on it now and at least learning their way, it's going to be a huge catch up game. And presence, branding, and most I mean, very importantly, employer brand. Uh, employers can use skin smaller companies, right? right? Employers can use the internet to to brand themselves and to use their employees to help brand. Employees want to work, especially the younger generations coming up. They want to work at a company that is exciting, that's fascinating, that allows them to use their passions and their talents that other people are saying, hey, it's great, it's great to work here. When you look into employer, not company branding, employer branding, that is one huge thing that I think a lot of companies are really falling and late to the game and quite frankly, really haven't even considered. But to all companies, big and small, how can you use the internet, social media, videos, company happy hours to really get advocates for people who say, yes, work for this company that I work for, your everyday employees, hey, come work for this company that I work for, get that emotional attachment, and that can be a great driver. But yeah, get get on it sooner than later. And again, it doesn't have to be where you're spending all this time and all this money. Just start, do something, find your way, get get help when you need it. And once the pandemic's over, if those are things are successful, you're not going to abandon them. You're going to actually keep building them, are you not? They're going to be lasting no matter what at this point. Great. Thank you very much, Jeremy. <laughs> it was great having you sitting down, having this conversation with you, and we're going to do this again. Uh, but that's it for now. I'm Tom Bradshaw. He's Dr. Jeremy Lukaba. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.